Welcome to the final episode of season one of The Rebel Entrepreneur. And this is a hot seat episode where I get put in the hot seat. So Sean Jenkins is taking over the podcast. He's asking the questions and I get to answer. And at the end, I have a competition for you. So enjoy the episode, tune in and stay behind to hear about the competition. What would it take to become the hero of your own life? To build the business you've always dreamt of? To make money doing something you love? It's time to take control. Can we get on with making money and having fun now? I'm not doing it if it's not fun. Join the rebellion with Alan Donegan and welcome to Rebel Entrepreneur. Well, hello, this is Sean Jenkins. I'm here with my good friend, Alan Donegan of the Rebel Entrepreneur podcast. And it is a huge privilege for me to be able to switch microphones with my esteemed colleague here, Alan, and take over the hosting duties. A little intimidating, I must say, but I think I think we're going to have a wonderful time. Can't wait to actually interview the interviewer and learn about Alan's story and hear from his insights here today on the podcast. So, Alan, with that, welcome to your own podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've been dying to be on it. I'm really looking forward to this because one of the things you said in your interview, which I love so much, was the entrepreneur's story that is the oxygen for new entrepreneurs that keeps them going, keeps them alive. And I couldn't think of anyone I'd rather help uncover the oxygen that I can provide to new entrepreneurs. It's a terrific honor to be doing this. I have been so excited since we talked about this last to actually spend time just unpacking your story, listening to the journey that you've been on and learning from it. And I'm sure it's going to provide enormous amount of oxygen for my brain as we go through it and inspiration for me and all of our listeners here today. So let's get started. I'm in. Well, in one of the presentations I saw you give, there was a photo that has always stuck with me. And I wanted to ask you about it. It's of Alan Donegan on a landscaping mower or tractor, as you might say. And I'm interested to know about that story, about your time doing lawn maintenance and landscaping, and why you think that continues to be part of something you pull forward into the narrative that you have today. Wow. Yeah. There's a great picture. I'm going to have to put that picture in the show notes. It's me riding a John Deere lawnmower. It was one of the promotional shots for that company. And actually, I crashed out of a job. I was completely lost and wondering what to do with my world because my parents were getting divorced, losing the family home, all of that stuff. I decided to go traveling and volunteering and to earn enough money to be able to go traveling and volunteer because you actually have to pay to volunteer. I had to get a job. And at short notice, the only thing I could find was landscaping. And I remember it being around about Christmas. It was frozen. I'd never done anything like this before. And I turned up on the first day. I didn't have gloves. It was minus three degrees centigrade. We were meant to be rolling turf, which didn't roll. It cracked because of the ice. And I was in pain after five minutes with hands that were getting burnt. And it was a painful learning experience. And I did that to earn enough money in a couple of months. Went volunteering, came back and spoke to the owner and said, I'm back. And he said, actually, I'm looking for someone to be a general manager. Do you want to come and do it? And I said, yes. I had no idea about grounds maintenance. I had no idea about landscaping. 
I knew I could figure things out. So I arrived at this random business that had clients that were annoyed of it. They had customers that were failing. They had all sorts of things going wrong. And I spent my days trying to figure out how do you improve this business? And I think that mentality of how do you make things better, whatever it is, whether it's fixing a lawnmower, helping a customer or working out how do you do a better job, is that constant improvement, I think, that's stuck with me over the years. Well, that's an incredible story. And, and to me, it's fascinating how that thread is really woven through your life. And unlike anything I've, I've ever known or anybody else that I've known, is this idea of identifying an area that you don't have mastery of, either out of curiosity or fear or need or whatnot, and then going through a process of learning that discipline. If you think about, remember Stephen Covey and the Seven Habits mm-hmm. of Highly Effective People, he had this notion of the four levels of competence. So you have unconscious incompetence where you don't even know that you don't know. And then somehow you get consciously incompetent, meaning you you know that you don't know about a particular subject, in this case, turf or landscaping. Then you move into, after working on it, conscious competence, and then eventually you become unconsciously competent at the thing. And, and for you, you are so curious and you're constantly improving I wanted to understand, if you'll help me think about this, do you actively seek out areas where you don't have mastery or or unconscious competence and then go after them? Do you have a list of those? For example, I'll use one, public speaking. I know that you're a fantastic public speaker, one of the best I've ever heard. I believe that earlier in your life or your career, that wasn't a skill that you naturally had. Is that something you tore after and and became competent? Or how do you tackle one of these things? And let's just use public speaking as maybe an example, like where did that desire come from? Can I give you an example from the landscape days and then finish with public speaking? Absolutely. So the landscape days, actually what happened was I didn't have to go out and seek problems. There was enough that came to me. So I joined this company and one of the clients basically said, if you don't get this grass mown and these hedges done, we're firing you. And that's a fairly big problem. So I go to the operatives and say, have you mown the grass and hedges? They say yes. So you've got the client saying you haven't done it, the operative saying you have done it, and then you're trying to work it out. Then I'm saying to the the operatives, show me the maps. And they had these hand-drawn pencil maps with coloured-in areas on them. And each development had five or six maps with different areas. And I was saying to them, how do you even read these things? And they were like, well, we've had practice. I go to the client, I lay out the maps, and I'm saying, so which is the area that isn't done? And he shows me photos of this overgrown area. And I said, where is it on the map? Turns out it's not on the maps. Well, we're only mowing what's on the maps. And then there was this big discussion of how they retracted their complaint. We then had to add it to the maps and rework it. And I spent the next probably two months back in the old days with, I used Microsoft Publisher sketching out the maps, consolidating them all into one, laminating them into a deck of maps, turning them into a route. And that was kind of how my mind worked. But I never had a problem finding stuff to do. It was like, it's as though enough problems exist. You just have to apply yourself to one of those problems. And that was always my thing in those businesses was find something that's going wrong and see if I can fix it. And there was a new one every day. And then the public speaking, really, I wanted to start a training business. So 
I myself lacked confidence when I was younger. I was bullied heavily at school. I couldn't talk to strangers. I struggled with so many things. And I went on these training courses and read these books, which improved my life. And then I kind of became zealous and went, I want to tell the world about these tools and these things that have improved my life. So I charged out there to start a training business. Then had this moment of holy moly, if I run a training business, I need to be able to stand up and speak. How do I do that? Oh, one of the books I've read said join Toastmasters. Okay, I'll join Toastmasters. I'll buy the top three books on public speaking. I'll start studying. I'll start doing it. And after seven years of entering Toastmasters competitions, reading every book I could find, buying DVD sets, constant study, I thought I got pretty good at it. And I think you can always learn more, but it's that identifying what skill you want to learn, finding people who are good at it, and then learning from them. And that's absolutely what I did with public speaking, is go and find the best I could in the country, ask them how they did it, watch them, study them, read, learn, and then practice. And I think if you took the practice element, after probably six or eight months of doing this, people were saying to me, you're pretty good at this, Alan. You're so lucky you were born with these communication skills. And I was a bit indignant. What do you mean lucky? Lucky? I work for this. These people that said I was lucky were doing one, two, three, seven minute speeches a year. And I was doing six to eight hours a day. And it was nothing to do with luck. It was to do with throwing myself out there, failing repeatedly, getting bad feedback until I was starting to learn and improve. And yeah, that was it. So I think that's how I take something I want to learn is go find someone, learn from them, buy the top three books and do it. Fascinating. And you talk about being shy as a kid and yet you're describing... No one believes me. No one yeah. believes me when I say that. Yeah, I, I, I believe you because I, I can relate. You know, in my case, it was, I was just terrified of going into school the first day of the year and being around new people and, and still have a fair amount of that. And I've developed coping mechanisms and whatnot. And so there's a shy kid, Alan, and yet you're describing what would be considered to be strong desire to overcome obstacles, to learn new material, to be in uncomfortable situations, whether it was with the customer at the landscaping business, a lot of people would have shied away from that angry customer, but you went towards them and even the tension between them and the crews, or in this case, public speaking, you wanted to teach people what you were learning in these books. I mean, do you have like a phrase from your mother who said, you know, overcome, or is there a, a particular book or person that influenced you with that? Or where does that ability to overcome even your own shyness or you know, desire to kind of recoil? How, how do you get that fuel to put yourself in those uncomfortable positions? I think there's three things actually that drive it. And one does come from my mum. She used to repeat when I was younger, there's no such word as can't. There's no such word as can't which actually in later years I had to repeat to her a few times because she forgot. And it's interesting how that goes in cycles and you forget sometimes, but there's no such word as can't. Now that you say that, I, I think I've seen you physically get like frustrated in your face when someone says, well, I couldn't do that, you know, whether it was a pop-up or whatnot. So that comes from specific training. Your mother says, hey, take the word can't and set it aside. It doesn't exist. What are the other two elements that you think drive you in this area? The second one is 
the reading I've done about self-development. And there was a saying actually from Zig Ziglar, great self-development name. He said, you can have anything you want in life if you're willing to pay the price up front and in full. And that made me go, ooh, I can have anything. I can have a business. I can have a nice house. I can travel. Okay, let's just figure out what the price is and figure out how to pay it. And that has really driven me. So mum saying there's no such word as can't. And then the realisation of you can actually achieve pretty much anything if you put your heart, mind and soul into it. And I genuinely believe that. And then the third is actually an away from motivator, which is my dad. The money problems, the pain and him going bankrupt and losing the family home and the hassle he caused for my mum. I never want to be in a financial situation like he put himself in. And he earned all the money he ever needed to be financially independent and then blew the lot. And I never want to have that happen to me. Never in a million years. So there's an away from motivator that really drives me. As you describe that, I almost think of like magnets, you know, where depending on how they're aligned, they either draw you towards something or they push you away. I'm interested in the Ziegler quote, you can have anything in life you want if you're willing to pay the price up front in full. How do you believe that, though? Like, I mean, I've read a lot of quotes about a lot of different things. And, and even if I want to believe them, sometimes it's hard to convince, I don't know, the inner brain or the subconscious. How did you buy that to be true? Did you see other successful people and you thought, OK, did it take a while for you to adopt that? Or did you just buy it because some guy on a tape, uh, would, it would have been a tape <laughs> back with Zig, was saying it? Was it hard for you to believe into that or was it pretty easy? I did a lot of self-development. I listened to all of the Brian Tracy, Zig Ziglar, Tony Robbins. I listened to all of the tape sets, the CD sets. And a lot of them have similar messages of you can do this if you want to, if you put your heart into it and all of those things. And you hear it repeatedly enough. You start to believe it, but then you go out and try and you fail. And then you go, this is a load of insert expletives. And it takes you a while to bounce back. You have another go, you fail again. Then there's a green shoot. Then you see, oh, I did something that actually worked and you start to believe it a bit more. You see other people who've been successful, definitely. Some of my friend's parents had retired at 45 and had built up a property portfolio that supported them. And I was like, that's quite interesting. They now travel around the country, do what they want, look at buying other houses. That's a cool lifestyle. Maybe I can do that. No, they seem smart to me. They seem smart, but I think I could do it. So I think a combination of the number of hours I've spent listening to that stuff, Sean, the positive messages to try and drum it into my skull is unbelievable. And I think eventually you see green shoots and start to believe. Yeah, I, I can relate. I, I listened to, I think, the same catalog that you had there, same <laughs> genre. There is something about repetition, obviously, or volume I remember Zig saying something along the lines of, if someone tried to take my tape recorder away from me, you know, he'd have to give me more than X amount of money or, you know, I'd, I'd give up everything to not lose this. And the point I think he was making is I have to listen to these tapes myself to be able to do what I do. Uh, and that similar concept, it's almost like you just have to get a, a philosophy or, or some habit going of repetition and listening. And now we live in this age of content, podcast and, and whatnot. It's almost easier than ever. So 
one thing that folks can take away from your story then, if I'm hearing it right, is find the material that is attractive to you, that, that sets a lifestyle that you're looking for and just wear it out. Is that how you think about it? Well, I think there's two elements to that. One is you said find the material that feels attractive to you. Sometimes the material you need is not attractive. And mm. I was scared, witless of sales and making cold calls. And I didn't want to read books. It made me cry. But I read Cold Calling for Chickens. I listened to the CD sets from Tony Robbins about sales and persuasion. It made me incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly uncomfortable. But actually, quite often, the things you need to learn the most are the things you least want to. And I would say if there is a book, a CD set that is repulsing you, ask yourself why and then start listening to it and see what you can take away. Because there is always a nugget of information that will help you succeed in every one of these. So I would, if it was painful, I knew I had to dive in. And I think one of the sayings I repeat regularly is, your success in life is directly to equivalent to the amount of uncomfortable moments you can go through. Mm -hmm. So if you're uncomfortable learning sales, that's where you've got to start. And then, yes, it's about learning and learning and learning and repeating and repeating and... The number of times I've listened to this stuff from different people in different ways is unbelievable. And then people ask me, Alan, how did you get so good at helping people to start up? Well, I've spent the last eight years repeatedly going through the same startup course, listening to myself. And then halfway through the course, I always go, that's really good, Alan. Why aren't you doing that in your business? And then I have to go and swallow my own pill and take my own medicine and get on with it. But I have sat through so many startup courses. I better be good at this by now, even if it's my own course. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. That's taking your own medicine and listening to your own advice can be awfully difficult yes. at times or humbling. And I like the way you're, you're phrasing that. You think about what it is that's making you uncomfortable and be attracted to that, I guess. Or maybe it's get some motivation or motion happening in an area that makes you uncomfortable. So let's think about this with your father's experience in bankruptcy and debt and, and that recovery process. I'm sure something like that takes years, not months. How did that influence you? What was that like to go through? And how did you turn that coal into diamonds, if you will? Or maybe you're still turning it into diamonds. It's really interesting. I'm 41 years old and it's still affecting me what he did 25, 30 years ago. And it was probably a 15-year process to get things to a normal-ish state. What was it like going through it? They are some of the most painful and hard times I've ever been through in my life. And one of two things is going to happen in pressure. You're either going to snap and it's going to break you, or it's going to turn you into a diamond. It's going to forge you into who you are. The strongest motivation I've ever had happened in a moment in Basingstoke Court, the very grey 60s council building with a very drab interior. It's not a nice place. And we were in this little room with a judge and the bank's solicitor, lawyer, and we were arguing the case, my brother and I, because we couldn't afford a solicitor. And the judge said, I've had enough. I disagree with you. You're wrong on this specific point of law. I'm making my decision. I went, you can't do that. We're right. Here's the proof. He said, I don't really care. I've heard enough. You're wrong. He whacked his gavel down and said, I award the house to the bank. You have one month to get out. My mum burst into tears. 
She's screaming, you can't do that. My little brother and I are wondering what we can do. I'm telling the judge he's wrong. He's wrong. And I think I just kept repeating that. And we left that grey building in tatters. But I have never felt so motivated to overturn him because I felt he was wrong. And the specific point of law was he said the statute of limitations doesn't apply to mortgages. And what that means is there's only a certain period of time that someone can not chase you for a debt. If they've left it too long, they can't go back. And he said that didn't apply to mortgages. I knew it did because I'd read the law and I went away and I was like, I'm going to fix this. I don't care what it takes. I rung half the country's lawyers to get the free 30 minutes telling them our problem (laughs) and asking advice. And they would say, oh, have you read this bit or have you read this bit? And I would go back and read the case law from the High Court in London and the judges there and what they said about different cases. And with my brother, we would build the case that we could then appeal. And we managed to win the right to appeal. Took us, I think, a further two years to actually appeal. Yeah, that moment, I think that's one of the moments I started to believe I can do anything. And I started to believe that the people who you respect, the judges, the doctors, they don't always have a clue what they're doing. They don't always get it right. And it does take someone to challenge them. It's an amazing story and formative, I can imagine, in so many ways. And as you're sitting here describing that, I'm thinking, I can feel in your words how you must have been learning how to learn and realizing that your brain could go from not knowing something to researching it, calling out to experts, reading, uh, and going through whatever process you and your family went through, and then ending up with actually some level of mastery of a subject, even more so than someone who's an expert. Do you think that was the beginning of your self-development journey? Or had you already been reading some of these books prior to that, and they gave you confidence going into it? Or was the pressure of the situation the thing that taught you that your brain can learn, and then therefore you were hungry for more? Where were you on that self-development journey as this period took place, if you can recall? Someone gave me a book called Notes from a Friend by Tony Robbins. Very small book. That was the first ever self-development book I read. And I just left the family business as it was all falling down. And this guy called Matvey Mihailovich Ananin handed me the book as I was off to Brazil. And I always say about that time, the family business had crashed. Parents were getting divorced. The two biggest areas of my life fell to pieces. So I went to my girlfriend at the time and said, let's go away. Let's like go somewhere. Come to Brazil. I know you've not got any money. I don't care. I'll pay. And she said, Alan, I don't really love you. So I lost my girlfriend in that move as well. And the three biggest areas of my life collapsed. And I went to Brazil on my own with this beach. I sat there on Copacabana Beach, staring at all the attractive Brazilians, reading this book from Tony Robbins, wondering what to do with my life. And he gave me hope. And I think it was that hope. Something in there said that you can figure it out. And I believed. I believed I could figure it out. And I read a few more of his books. They're actually really thick and hard to get through, the later ones. But I read a few more of his books. And then by this stage, I got a little bit of belief around I could make things happen. And that's around the time that kicked off. So I'd already started. But I think this really formed it 
that I could take on one of the biggest banks in the UK. Their solicitor was named Mr. Bond. I always <laughs> love that. Every time no. you come in, Mr. Bond, do you have any comments? And he would refer to me, my mum and my brother under the collective noun, the Donegans. Oh, uh, do the wow. Donegans have any comments? <laughs> and I started to believe that I could take on Mr. Bond and the bank. And we defeated them. And roughly in dollars, if you take the dollar amount, the only thing they have leverage over was the family home. It was around about $5 million my dad owned, about three and a half million pounds. And we settled for about 140 grand, which is about a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And the rest of the money we got back from selling the house, I bought a house for my mum with. And so we got her a home back. I like to think we defeated the bank and defeated the mess that my dad put us into. The bank is not necessarily the evil person. They definitely played their part in doing some pretty bad things. But yeah, the villain is mainly my dad. Did that answer the question? That's incredible. I'm seeing you on this boat where the friend is reaching out his hand to hand you this book before you're off to Brazil that if you don't have this book, it doesn't turn out this way. And I'm also getting an image of why, uh, and we'll get to this a little bit later, why perhaps you have a future in uh, writing movie scripts, writing scripts for movies, because <laughs> you're clearly describing like multiple movies here in, in this one scene. That's fascinating. Well, thank you for sharing that. I know that's that's personal. And one of the things that I take away from your story is that you don't really separate business and personal, like business, starting a business, running a business, having a career in someone else's business, whatever it is, that's not separate from your like real life. I know everyone wants to have work-life balance or separate the two somehow and keep them equally going. What you're describing is your life and your family and all, we all have these messy families and all these stories that we bring that is who you are at work. And rather than running away from it or, or pretending it doesn't exist or trying to be, be someone else at work, you just live in your life and you're learning from both disciplines. You're learning from your career development and your life. And you're using these stories and these experiences as fuel to power this engine that ultimately becomes a business. So how do you, how do we go from this scene to I'm going to start a business. Like, What was your first business that you brought to life? Uh, best business model ever was at school. They told us to bake some cakes and then come and sell them. So my mum brought the ingredients. We made Mars bar cake and then I sold them and got to keep all the profits. It was a wonderful margin. That was my first glimpse of it. And then actually my dad's business had gone wrong by the time I got to college. And the biggest gift he gave me was... He said, I can't pay you pocket money. I can't help you pay for the train to get to and from college. I've got no money, but you can take anything from my sportswear store at cost and I'll help you price it and profit it. And then if you sell it at school, you can keep the profit and that will pay for you to get there. So I think that was 15 or so that started. And I remember at college, I was the one they always laughed at because I always had this massive bag over my shoulder jam-packed full of trainers, shirts, t-shirts, stuff. And I was always trying to sell sweatshirts and different things. And I'd make £10 selling a sweatshirt and then I'd make this and make that. And then I started to sell tickets to the school parties, the college parties. This is 17, 18 years old. At one stage, I made the decision that I should be selling all of them. 
So I went to the party organisers and said how much to buy all the tickets. I bought all the tickets to the party and then I was the only ticket agent. And then I got my friends to go round and sell them all. And I made probably triple or quadruple what I did in my first full-time job when I was at college, just hustling. That's the biggest gift my dad gave me was he didn't give me money. He gave me the opportunity to earn and I liked it. It's fascinating. So this learning how to learn, I'm always interested in how people learn how to learn in that awakening that you experience when you realize, oh, I'm learning and I'm learning this particular area and it is very useful. I probably could learn another area and that could be equally as useful, maybe in a different way. And so what was it when you began to think about your training business where you were going to go into business for yourself to be a trainer? What was that experience like? Were you leaning on these prior business experiences or did you think this was totally different because it was you giving training? How were you thinking about the training business, your kind of your first commercial endeavor? So I didn't actually link two and two in my head because when I was selling my training business, I found it particularly painful because I felt every person who rejected me was rejecting me personally. Whereas when you're selling a t-shirt, they can reject the t-shirt. So there's a difference between a personal service and a product business. Those first few months of rejection were incredibly painful. I found this amazing guy called Ed, who was a very good salesperson. He offered to help me. I went to his office. He gave me a list of companies. We went through them. I made 100 calls in the morning, which for me, that was... In 100 calls, I found one that was marginally interested. And I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said, oh, yeah, it sounds marginally interesting. Come back to me in a month. And I accepted it and said, I'll come back to you in a month and got off the phone. Ed was asking me about my experience in the morning. And I said, oh, you know, I've done 100 calls. There's this one guy who's interested. And he's like, why did you accept come back in a month? Why didn't you say I'll come round now and see you? Because like, he said it would be a month. But that's not the what you've got to drive home. You've got to do this. And I can feel it now. My insides were revolting. It's like, I can't do that. I can't push. And we had this most uncomfortable conversation. And he said, "Okay, go get some lunch. Come back after lunch and we'll do some more calls. And I went outside, sat on the wall in the sunshine and cried. And in my head, I was saying, if I can't do this, I can't have a business. Because he said to me, you need to be able to call companies. In a way, he's totally right. It's not the only option, but it's one of the most powerful. And I sat there crying because I thought my dream was over and I never went back in. And I actually lost him as a mentor because I couldn't do it. I ran. Have you seen him since? Like, did you ever reconnect with him or is he just like a dark connection on Facebook in the past? Saw him a couple of times. It was a little bit awkward to start with. Now it's okay, but I definitely showed some colours that day. And those are the moments that you're not actually proud of. But I was in so much pain, Sean. I just, I couldn't bring myself to go back in that room. I was ripping myself in two, going, I have to do this, but I can't. I have to do this, but I can't. And just ripping myself in two. So how did you get from from that moment to obviously you, you booked a training session somewhere along the way? Was there a big gap then? Or did you try a different methodology? Or did you luck into your first gig? Like, how do you get your first gig after that? kind of luck. I started reading the cold calling books. I started practicing. 
And one of the tips they said on the cold calling books was use every call, every single call, including incoming ones, as a sales opportunity. I was like, okay, well, that's low risk. So one day, this guy rang up and he said, hi, I'm from the Times newspaper. I was like, wow, they've rung to interview me because I'm starting a new business. And he said, would you like to buy a subscription? (laughs) And my heart sank. (laughs) Oh, that's rubbish. And I said, okay, well, maybe, yes, because I'm starting this new business and da-da-da. And he said, oh, what's the new business? And we had this really good chat. And he said, well, actually, I heard one of the managers say they were looking for a new trainer to help us. Would you mind if I give them your details? And I said, no. And I brought a subscription to the Times newspaper and they brought my first ever training course, uh, which was teaching their sales staff how to make phone calls, which was something I was petrified of. (laughs) But I'd landed them on the phone. So uh, figure that one out. I love that. What an incredible serendipity, (laughs) open door, falling in your lap. I don't know how you would describe that, but what a pivot. And I guess reading all those books, it's amazing how your brain at the right moment under the right amount of pressure will just recall something out of there, some piece of information that that has come to you prior. And you took that call and turned it. So congratulations. We might not be speaking right now if <laughs> that guy not called you or you not handled that bit of a different way. I can't even remember why. I was just in a good mood. I was just in a good chatty mood and just started speaking to him. And I think actually the main thing was I didn't see any chance of success. So I had no weight on the call. There was no pressure that I must get this because this guy's just a telesales guy. He's never going to buy anything. So just have a chat, have fun. And I think actually that lack of pressure really helped me. And I remember giving this piece of advice to a lady in the States who was helping set up a dance business. And she said, I'm a bit nervous about doing it. And I said, well, call a load of the businesses you want to sell to in another state that you don't actually want to sell to and try them. And once you've practiced on the ones that you don't actually want to sell to, then ring the ones you do. And she rang me up, I think the next day and said, I did that. I've got a couple of orders in a state that I don't want to go to. (laughs) What do I do now? And I think that low pressure, it doesn't have to be a sale, just connect is a brilliant way to get going on the phone. That's a great tool. I'm going to use that one myself when I get to my next uh, (laughs) hurdle. Let's think about some of these businesses you've started. So the way you formed learning, research, and then turning it into some level of mastery or, or confidence or competence. And I had this interesting observation of your body of work, Alan, which is growing and extremely impressive. You have created some interesting collaborations or partnerships, and I've got just off the top of my head, five of them that come to mind. I'm sure there are more, but I wanted to ask you about partnerships for a second, but if I can just list these five. One is Pop-Up, Pop-Up Business School, which you have a co-founder and a partner, Simon. Another, which is where I met you, is actually Chautauqua, which is an annual series of events around the world with J.L. Collins. I want to ask you about that one a little bit, but that's a partnership or collaboration. This podcast, Rebel Entrepreneur Podcast, is a collaboration with Brad and Jonathan at the Choose Five. I think you've done some partnership or work with Mr. Money Mustache and Longmont, Longmont there in Colorado and some, some courses and, and so forth, and there may be some more things coming. And then the fifth one, and by far the most impressive, is your partnership with your wonderful wife, Katie, and how you guys 
live your life. Last year, you spent time in L.A. writing a movie script. This year, you were in New Orleans working on jazz music, and Katie's an accomplished pianist. And I'm sure there are more partnerships. I'm sure there are more collaborations. But I was curious to ask you, and I'd like to dig into some of these in, in your experience because they'll, they'll be fascinating, but just on the subject of partners, collaboration, is that something that's been intentional or you did the first one and you found that it worked? Like, where do you think that instinct to connect with people and then build something together with them? Where do you think that comes from? Because entrepreneurship often is pitched as this sole thing. You do it yourself. You're your own boss. You know, even rebel entrepreneur kind of has a bit of a go against the grain. And yet your story is much more harmonious with people who love you and, and want to work with you. Where does that come from? That's a great question. Where does it come from? I love people. I love being around people. I have a desire to work with cool people. And I think I battled for many years being a solopreneur, and it's quite painful at times. And having people around you makes life so much better, and you can all work together. And I've always sought out people. I think in my youth, I was very lonely because I got bullied, and all I wanted was someone to love me. And I think later on in life, I just wanted people around to work with, to partner with. And the thing I've definitely discovered is if you have their best interests at heart, quite often they have your best interests in heart and those are the best partnerships. And then how did those particular ones come about? I go around shouting my vision or my mission or my thing. And I was saying to Simon, this is how it started. I was saying to Simon, there has to be a better way to teach people to start businesses. Business plans, loans do not work. There has to be a better way. Got some ideas. What do you think? And his experience said, you're right, Alan, there has to be a better way. And then we're discussing what do you actually need to learn at school? What do you actually need to learn to be an entrepreneur? And how do you do it? And we're designing this thing together. And it's that getting excited about stuff. And I think in the British culture, we don't actually like people who get too excited. Like, calm down, stay in line. We don't like that, which I think is why I'm sometimes attracted to work with the American culture, because they get very excited about stuff, and I love it. My excitement and energy puts some people off, but it attracts some cool people to you who see possibility, and I go around the world and get excited about things. I don't care what it is. I get super excited. I want to change the world. I want to do this. Like, whatever it is, let's go. And that drive and energy, I think people feel it. And once they felt it, they go, OK, we could do some cool stuff together. Yes. And I think there has to be a belief. One of the things I've realised is making things happen is actually a rare skill. And I know that sounds weird because you're like, what do you mean, Alan? But the ability to organise an event, the ability to write a pitch document, the ability to make something happen is not that common. So I go around making things happen super quick and people are surprised and they go, oh, we're doing this then. OK. And then we do it together and they either go, that was great fun. I want to work with you again, Alan. Or they go, get away from me. That was terrible. I never want to do it again. But we both learn, I tell you, through doing the process. I like to go around inspiring myself. And if I inspire myself, other people connect with it. Yeah, the, the idea of the electric energy or the attractive energy of motion, of, of movement, of someone who's going somewhere, who has some purpose. So when you when you begin to have this conversation with Simon and pop up, 
had you been working on entrepreneurship content yourself in your training business and then he came along or had you known him for a while or tell me about how that partnership really formed like what was the how long did it take were there lots of conversations just what, what's the mechanic behind that i launched my training business it was highly unsuccessful i pivoted to sell to schools that was highly unsuccessful because schools don't have any money and it was a real tough market and then i'm studying entrepreneurship books and i'm learning and i'm trying to get better and there was this free service from the British government called Business Link. And I thought, great, free education. I'll go. They gave me the standard three workshops, how to write a business plan, finance or debt and marketing. And they did more to scare me off ever starting than they did to help me. And I remember being completely lost at home. And I was listening to one of these CD sets whilst I was mowing my mum's lawn, pacing up and down the garden mowing, thinking, what do I do? How do I fit into this world? I'm not going into debt based on my dad's experience. No way. I don't fit in. And for some reason, I got the idea to complain. So I wrote a handwritten three-page letter to the guy who funded the contract for the South of England. There's a £40 million contract that he funded. And I let loose and told him exactly what I thought of his service and how lost I was. I thought, what do I have to lose? Like, I'm in a mess. So I wrote a letter. My letters have kind of become legendary with the pop-up company because I write random letters and do random things. And this letter went to this guy. His name was Glenn Atherthold. And he took the letter and he rung me. He said, Alan, I've got your letter. You seem lost. Let me see if I can help. And he spent an hour and a half on the phone understanding my issue, giving me ideas. He was amazing. And he said, look, please give us another chance. We're not all like this. Let me find someone who can help you. And you can't really say no to that. So I said yes. And if you cut to my business partner's side of the story, Simon, he sat in the office working for uh, Business Link. And the CEO comes out of the office looking a bit red and angry and holding three sheets of paper. And she's looking round for someone to deal with this complaint. And I think Simon looked up at the wrong time, caught her eye, and she's like, ah, Simon, here, here's this letter, three <laughs> yes. pages, go meet him, deal with him, he's complained to the top man that funds this whole thing, fix this. Simon read the letter, and a sense of, I think, foreboding came across him. He was like, I do not want to go to this meeting, we've treated this guy badly, it's going to be hideous. But he did it, he rung me. And we met in Starbucks in Winchester. I think he bought the coffees. He bought me a giant coffee and we sat there drinking coffee and chatting. And I was telling him about my business, asking him about him. We had this great conversation. And the bit that he said changed it for him is right at the end of the conversation. I said, look, I found this really helpful. Thank you. How can I help you? And he stopped and went, what do you mean? How can you help me? I'm here to help you. And I said, well, you've been great. Thank you. I'd love to do this again. Like, what can I do to support you? And he went, let me think about that. I'll come back to you. And he said that was one of the best coffee meetings he'd ever had. And it was one of the ones he dreaded the most. And we just talked about what's the best way to help someone start a business and brainstormed ideas. And then we had another coffee two weeks later and another and another. And I think a year or two of coffee chat and conversation and we've come up with a million ideas and he says okay let's try selling it to housing associations and I went cool 
I know one. So by the time he'd got home, I'd rung the housing association I'd known and set up a meeting to sell it. And that was the first ever pop-up. Is he still working at the government agency at this point and no. waiting for this to come together? Or what, how does his life change in the meantime? Well, the government agency, they stopped running the service, which tells you a lot. Uh, Probably because of this complaint that they got. That, <laughs> I don't uh, think it was all my fault. So he uh, got him fired. That's good. That's a good no. start. <laughs> so he worked there. He was in a, a slightly different part that was helping disadvantaged communities, but he worked there for a while. It was slowly closing down. It got taken over by another company and then fully closed. And then at that point, when he'd left, I said, well, let's do this course together. Let's do it. And he was half launching a web design business and half helping me launch pop-up. We did the first one together, the most phenomenal experience because we wrote the course in a month beforehand and then we just spent two weeks in a random industrial unit, an old wood factory, helping a bunch of random people from an estate in Western Supermare to start up and just figuring it out on the fly. Like, this guy wants to start a cafe. How do we do that? Brainstorm ideas, work out what to do next. And every night we go for a curry and work out what to do the next day and how to help these people and what do they need. And it was the most incredible experience. We loved it, but then we couldn't sell the second one quick enough. And he had a family, had two kids and a wife, and he needed money quicker. So he went off and got another job. Then I grew pop-up for the next, I don't know, four years, maybe a bit longer, until I had enough money. And I rung him up and said, Simon, do you want to come for food? We went out to food to a very dodgy Chinese restaurant. And the question I asked was, how much do you need to quit your job and come back to pop-up? wasn't even a do you want to. It was just give me a number. And he gave me a number. And I think I transferred the money a few days later. And he quit his job and came back to pop-up. He had a few wobbles along the way. He was nervous. It was the highest paying job he'd ever had. And I think he was nervous. But then he saw the cash I'd sent him sat in a bank and thought, I've got to do this. And how many years ago was that, Alan? Probably four or five, four or five years. And yeah, it's turned into a company of eight people helping thousands of people around the world a year, running six countries last year across three or four continents. It's turned into a an incredible business. That's a fantastic story. And I can attest to your your sense of generosity when you meet with somebody. When I first met you at Chautauqua, it was in Greece, and we were talking and you were we were learning about you know, each other's background and why we were at this uh, Chautauqua event that you were hosting with JL Collins and the group there. And you said, how can I help you? Like, what are you involved in? How can I help you? And that generosity of time, I'm sure has opened up, up a lot of doors for you because so many people are worried about wasting time or worried about going down a dead end road or, or whatnot. How do you think that sense of I don't know whether it's curiosity or wonder or generosity of giving yourself over to other people. It seems to, not to put words in your mouth, but I'll ask you, it seems like that pays off more over time than it does cost you. Is that your experience? Unbelievably so, yes. And it actually comes from another Zig Ziglar quote, which is, help enough other people get what they want, and you can have anything you want in your life. Yes. And I've always liked helping people. And I actually get a huge reward from just helping them and seeing them happy. Don't care what it is. Just let me help you figure it out. Oh, you've got a problem with this. You've got a problem with that. I'll help. And I love doing that. 
and I get such a reward from just doing it that I don't care if anything comes back. So I'm giving without any caveats. There's nothing expected to come back. I just want to help. I would say that I do not offer my help to everyone. I meet a huge number of people. And if you could split them into two categories, there are the people who just like to talk about themselves. And I sit there and I get spoken at for an hour. And there are the people that tell me a story and ask me a question. And then I tell them a little story and ask them a question and we have a conversation. And I love that and I connect with them and I learn. And there's these amazing people that will ask you questions and be interested in you as well as you being interested in them. And it's only the second category that I have a true desire to help because the rest, they want to tell me everything's great and they're amazing and I can't help them. There's nothing I can do. They just want to talk at you. That's an incredible filter. When you started to say that, I thought you were going to say something along the lines of, you know, I choose to work with the people that are accomplishing something or self-motivated or whatever, but you went in a totally different direction. (laughs) And if I could paraphrase in my own mind, it'd be something along the lines of I'm looking for people or I work with people that are as curious as I am, that are curious about me and my story, not just about themselves and don't have it all figured out. Because when you hear people ask a lot of questions, what they're disclosing to you is that they don't know about a particular subject. Like when I first met you, I didn't know your story, but I was curious about it and wanted to learn more. I'm going to completely rip that off from you and and use it (laughs) in my own life. As we all do, we meet so many people, whether it's electronically or in person, and we have our own ways of kind of filtering through whether to, you know, agree to next steps or whatnot. And I, I think that's a wonderful way to think about what journeys do you want to go on with what types of people. And And maybe that takes us to a couple of these other ones, you know, Chautauqua with JL or the podcast with the guys at Choose Fi or some of your work with Mr. Money Mustache. Any one of those, did they start in similar fashion, just conversations with somebody and and then it built on top of each other? How'd you get into those collaborations? There's actually one life-changing moment that nearly all of those collaborations came from. And it was going on a Chautauqua myself. I always remember my wife texted me and said, do you want to go to Ecuador to meet? And I thought it was an autocorrect thing. And she was asking me if I wanted to go to Ecuador with my mum. (laughs) So I said, not sure I'm up for that. Why do you want to go with my mum? And she said, no, Mr. Money Mustache. The tickets are on sale now. They go really quickly. Should I buy them? And I love to learn. So yes, hell yes. Let's go to Ecuador and learn from... J.L. Collins, The Simple Path of Wealth, Mr. Money Mustache and a Mad Scientist. I'm in. So we travel around the world. And I think you had a similar experience, which I find fascinating. We get there. There's all these people. Katie and I have gone for a shower. We go to the first evening. Everyone's already in pairs and couples and trees, fours, chatting. And we stood on the edge and I couldn't talk to anyone. I was like, I can't be here. I don't want to be here. I feel nervous and uncomfortable. Can we go back to the room? I don't know how to do this. And she was looking at me going, just give it a minute, just give it a minute and trying to help me through my social anxiety. And all of a sudden, the lady came out who was meant to get everyone in to have the food. And she tried shouting to people saying, oh, can you come through for the food? Can you come in? Everyone was chatting. No one listened to her. And if there's one asset that I do have physically, it's a very loud voice. So I decided to help her. And I just in a very British accent went... Ladies and gentlemen, 
Dinner is served. Please come through. And they all stopped and stared at me, which was not the outcome I was after particularly because I went bright red. But they all went through. And in that one moment, I became a person. I became and then we were chatting and then it was fine. But yeah, I actually did the exact opposite of what I wanted to do, which was run away. (laughs) I shouted at everyone. And then how it's really came about was during the week, people were asking me, what's your business, Alan? What do you do? So we do pop up. This is what we do. We help people start up. I do this thing, five ways to start a business for free. And they started saying, well, that's interesting. Why don't you do a talk for us all? So I asked the organizer. I hijacked the conference. I ran my own workshop for 90 minutes. All those three characters, all the attendees were there. And I did 90 minutes on how to start a business with no money. It was so much fun. I could see in their faces. It was like, whoa, we didn't even know this stuff. And actually the pop-up philosophy fits perfectly with the financial independence philosophy of get going without debt, you know, make do with what you've got. There's lots of synergy there. And from that moment, I was friends with these incredible people and on a peer-to-peer level. That one event led to collaborations with all these incredible people that have become friends over the years. Yeah, I respect them. I want to help them. I love them. But that's the key turning moment when I gave away my skill for free at someone else's conference. Mm -hmm. And this Chautauqua concept, you got to it before I did, but then I ended up meeting you. And we, my wife and I did something similar where I was listening to Brad and Jonathan on Choose If I and they said, you know, Chautauqua tickets go on sale now. And I had learned a little bit about it, enough to know that it was a pretty interesting, potentially cool couple of weeks. And I texted my wife from the coffee shop, you want to go to Chautauqua? And she's like, anywhere <laughs> with you, babe. I love her so much. <laughs> and so we we signed up that day. But tell us, just for our listeners, what, what is Chautauqua? How would you describe it? And what's your involvement with it going forward? So I think the, the guy who came up with it is J.L. Collins, who wrote The Simple Path to Wealth. And he says it beautifully. He says, I wanted to have cool conversations with cool people in cool places. And cool conversations to him is conversations about financial independence, investing and the future. So he would pick a different location. It would start in Ecuador and 29 people a week would go and they would meet the biggest bloggers in the FI world and have a chat about life, future, and you would learn from them and they would learn from you. It was incredible. At the end of that conference that I went to, one of the most impactful ever, I had this idea that I wanted to give something to the speakers because they'd given so much to me. So Mr. Money Mustache hates cards because he says, why are you going to go and chop down a tree to give it to me so that I can throw it away? Don't give me cards. They're a waste of money, time and energy. I was like, well, I want to give you something. Me being me and a fan of PowerPoint, I made them a thank you PowerPoint. And I took a picture of every participant on the course, gave every participant a page, and each one wrote a thank you message to each of the speakers. And I got it done in a day. It was meant to be our day off, but I was like, I'm just going to do this. I got it done in a day. And JL says that he saw me in the morning hustling and wondered what I was up to, then saw that in the afternoon and was like, how did you do that? And then he knew that I was someone who could get something done. And just before I was getting on the bus to go to the airport, he said, would you like to run one of these in England for me? I was like, "Okay, sure. Got on the bus and disappeared. And that was it. And then nine months later, we're running one in England for him. And 
We'd used his format, created it, sold it, built it, and I've been running them with KT for the last three, four, five years. Can't remember how many, probably three or four. Taking a break this year for obvious reasons in 2020, but we'll be back in 2021. That's fascinating. And I keep hearing these themes of curiosity and generosity of your time, but getting things done and people being attracted to that and you know, that's why you and I are talking today, because I took the risk and we came to Chautauqua in Greece. I had that same nervousness, got off the plane and had never actually <laughs> spoken to anybody. Like it was all emails, wired you money and all these things. And my wife and I were standing in the baggage claim and I was like, honey, I do not know if there's going to be a human on the other <laughs> side of this. I don't know if this was a giant scam, but if nothing else, you know, we've got an American Express card. We'll figure our way out of this. We'll go somewhere else and we'll, and we'll have a good laugh about it. But you, you guys greeted us with open arms. Katie was there, JL and his wife and just the whole community. And it's really been a lot of fun being embraced by that. But also you've taught me, you know, in business, I, I was always trying to eliminate things that could go wrong, control things, fix things, make things right, presentations and whatnot. And you have to have that skill as a business owner. Your product's got to work. It's the pricing and everything. It's got to work. But I'd call the last couple of years since I met you, my years of serendipity or maximizing for serendipity, I think someone actually <laughs> used at the conference, and just being open to things dropping in your lap. And as we talked there in Greece, I said, let's do a a pop-up in Charleston. I don't even know what that meant completely. Of course, we did one a couple months ago. It was fantastic. And we'll talk about that uh, at another time. But this really wonderful spirit that you have of living your life kind of out loud, bringing us along in your momentum, but then also joining other people. I think this goes back to this collaboration or partnership. It's not just about you accomplishing your personal goals is it is about you finding interesting people to do interesting things with. And I want to talk about this collaboration or partnership that you and, and Katie have been on the last couple of years that I've witnessed um, since I've known you. And last year was characterized by moving to L.A. to write a movie script and taking that time. And this year it was, it was around uh, learning jazz music for Katie and her, her piano talent that she has. And how would you guys incorporate some of these things into just the way you're living your life? It's inspirational, but it's also a little bit terrifying. Like, I don't know if I can move to L.A. <laughs> to write a movie. I don't know. Help me think about how does this become a life skill or a, a life habit? I think it's living out of possibility. And if there's something you dream of doing, why not do it? Just start talking about it. You don't even need to know how. You just start talking about it and... Take the movie, for example. I've always wanted to write a movie. Katie knew that. So for one of my birthdays, she goes, right, I'm going to buy you a training course on how to write a movie. And she brought how to write a movie in a month. And she brought this course. She gave it to me. It was on a CD. That tells you how old it was. And I never found the month to write it. So I turned 40 and I remember being sat. We took my mum to Venice for her 70th birthday. And I was sat on the Grand Canal, drinking a coffee, looking out going, what do I want to do in my 40th year? It's funny how these big numbers make you think that. Actually, we should be doing that thinking every year, not waiting for 10 years. But I sat there thinking, what do I want to do? I want to write a movie. Okay, well, where do movies get made? Hollywood. Let's go to Hollywood. And I said to my wife and she said, cool, let's do it. If it's your dream, I'm in. And we booked two months in LA, flew out there. I spent six hours a day writing. 
and reading how to write and learning how to write a movie. And there's a little bit more work to do before I sell it. It's one of those things that can never be done. But I'm going to get it done this summer and actually go out and sell it. But I think it's living out that air of possibility. So many people in the world will tell you what you can't do. I like to look at what's possible. You want to write a movie? You want to be a movie star? You want to own a boat, own a jet? You want to live in a small house? You want to travel for like I don't care what it is. There's a way to make it happen. And I think I live in a world of possibility. I think that's the biggest difference. And the collaboration with Katie is we both live in a world of possibility and we make lists of all the cool stuff we could do. And whilst I was writing the movie in LA, Katie said, I'm going to learn guitar. So she did these YouTube videos. We rented a guitar for her. She learned the guitar. Three or four weeks in, she said, I don't have a purpose. I need a purpose. So she booked an open mic night with three and a half weeks experience playing the guitar. And she booked it for two days time. And in the next two days, she wrote a song and then went into a downtown Los Angeles open mic night, which was a little bit scary for a pair of British people. They were incredibly friendly, actually. They were amazing. And she performed the song that she wrote called Brown Food, which is all about how brown food makes you fat when you pass 30. It's a comedy song uh, on her (laughs) YouTube channel. It's just an air of possibility. It's like, I want to learn guitar. Okay, let's do it and let's perform. And you've got pressure because you've got to perform, but you just make it happen. Does that make sense? I love it. Yes. And I'm witnessing it as I live vicariously through you two and your your journey in your life. And it reminds me of something I've heard you say, but also have read on your blog. You want to help people make their dreams come true, which to me is linked to your purpose or your why or living intentional life. And not only are you making your own dreams come true, you have a deep desire to help other people make their dreams come true. And I'm sure that's where the Rebel Entrepreneur Podcast comes from and and the Pop-Up Business School and and all these things that you're getting yourself involved with. Can you tell me how, from a practical standpoint, you help us have the courage to make our dreams come true? What what does that purpose mean to you? What does the purpose mean? Yeah, the purpose of helping others make their dreams come true what is that in your life? What is that goal or that that desire to help all of us? Well, I think I've got to a stage where I feel like I've done okay. I've got a gorgeous wife, a wonderful business. I've got to financial independence, so I don't have to work again if I don't want to. My life is incredible by any traditional measure, and I feel very lucky. And I want to help other people get there. I don't care who you are, where you start. We can all get in a mess at sometimes. I want to help. And I think that still drives me to today. Whatever you want to do, as long as you're making progress and happy, that's it. So tell me about the word rebel. We're on the Rebel Entrepreneur podcast. It's recently launched. I can hear threads in your story of you know, wanting to do it different or being frustrated with the status quo. Why settle on the word rebel and link it to entrepreneur? What is it about that word? So I think actually rebel can have some negative connotations because quite often it's associated with just being a insert expletive, just being a pain and you cause pain just because you're a rebel. That's not what I'm talking about. You don't need to rebel against everything. However, the people who are successful in life quite often break the rules. And if the standard narrative in life is 
get the best education you can, go into debt, get the best job you can, pay off the debt, have two kids, follow the path. It's the people who break those standard narratives and do something different that really challenge the world. And I've spent my entire career going, presentations don't have to be done this way. Business doesn't have to be done this way. Finance doesn't have to be done this way. There's other options. And I rebel against the standard narrative that's forced upon me by culture and society. And I like to think my type of rebellion is healthy as it helps things to improve and change. And I'm not just rebelling against everything. So if you tell me there is a rule and I can understand there is a reason for the rule, I'll follow it because I think it's useful and helpful. But if you tell me a rule and say that's just the way things are done around here, that's not going to fly. I'm going to challenge that rule. I'm going to probably take it down and find a better way to do it. So I think it's about rebellion and rebelling against the constrictions that society puts on us, like the saying, it takes money to make money. That was actually written by a Roman poet, a Roman comedic writer, and it was written as a joke. And yet it's something that people go around saying as if it's fact nowadays. And there's these facts, and I'm doing that in quote, that people will tell you, like the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, uh, that people like to use to trap society from moving on. They need rebelling against, and people need help breaking out from that standard narrative so that they can make the best of their lives. I love it. And it's refreshing to see someone going against the grain with such passion and determination, but also with consistency. And you're talking about decades now of your experience, failures, successes, relationships, collaborations. And it's been a, a real pleasure hearing your story, learning more. Every time I think I know Alan Donegan, there's another set of chapters which are fascinating. <laughs> so thank you for allowing me to have the host microphone today and ask the questions. I've been wanting to ask you many of these questions for much time now. I'm sure our listeners have really enjoyed your podcast today. If folks want to get in touch with you or follow you along, what, what's the best way for, for folks to follow you, Alan? Uh, so I have a little blog. This is weird doing this part on my own show. Uh, I have a little blog called alandonegan.com where I write articles about this stuff. Then there's obviously the podcast people are listening to or popupbusinessschool.co.uk, which run free courses on entrepreneurship. So if people want help starting up, they will always be free. You'll never be upsold. Go there, experience it, see what happens. And what's the worst you've got to lose? I love it. And I can attest, uh, having hosted a pop-up here in, in Charleston, it was free and we had sponsors happily underwrite it so that all the guests and participants could come. And it's stimulated a great community here in Charleston. In fact, my wife was talking to a couple people from pop-up last night and they're collaborating on on something as we speak. And it's there's never been a better time to start a business with you know, little to no money at all and get going. So thank you for your inspiration. Thank you for sh sharing your story. Thanks for starting the Rebel Entrepreneur Podcast. Can't wait to see where you take it. So Sean, uh, we actually did an episode together talking about your podcast that you were thinking of launching in the blog. And I've been so impressed. You've actually done it, haven't you? Since that time, we ended up with kind of a list of four things that I should do right away. And I'm happy to report that I followed your wise advice. I've got several new articles written and worked on finishing up my new blog, which is seanjenkins.blog. And simultaneously, you encouraged me to reach out to 
four people and asked them to be on the new podcast, which there was no podcast to begin with. And so I had to nervously send out emails. Hey, you want to be on a podcast that doesn't exist? I did that. People said, yes, we've already recorded several episodes and the Sean Jenkins podcast will be launching soon. So I may even be out by the time people are hearing this recording. So thanks for the encouragement and the wisdom. Appreciate that. I love that. So they can find out more on seanjenkins.blog. That's exactly right. And it's S-H-A-W-N, just to make sure we're spelling the correct Sean. That's right. S-H-A-W-N-J-E-N-K-I-N-S dot blog. Awesome. Thank you for hosting the show, Sean. You're one of the best guests I've ever had. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. And there we are. That is the end of season one of The Rebel Entrepreneur. I can't believe we've done it. Thank you for joining me. And I've got some big announcements, obviously, it's the end of season one. Our aim was to help you start for free, build a business and get going. And I'm so grateful for you listening and coming on this journey with us. But I want to know, did it actually work? Like, there was no point me doing this podcast if it didn't actually help. So I want to know what episodes had the most impact, what worked. What didn't? What would you stop me doing? Did you like the coaching episodes? Did you like the other episodes? What had the most impact on you? And I've been thinking a lot about this. I really genuinely want to know from you what was best so that it can help me enhance and make a better season two to really help you build businesses and make money doing something you love. As you probably have known through the episodes, my wife, Katie, is an absolute geek when it comes to data science. And when I said I was thinking of doing a survey of the listeners or a feedback form to ask what worked, she got very excited. And we have put together a survey or a feedback form for you to tell us what you think and to gather some information and some data from you that we can use to understand what worked, what didn't and who is listening to this show. And that's going to help us make it better and better. So I would love you, please, to go to alandonagan.com forward slash rebel feedback and leave us some feedback. My name is spelled A-L-A-N-D-O-N-E-G-A-N. That's alandonagan.com forward slash rebel feedback. And there's a few questions there. Now, I know that filling out a feedback form is not that exciting, and I'm actually asking you to give me some energy. So I thought I would make it worth your while. We've decided to run a competition, and for every single person that fills out the feedback form, if you want to be, you'll be entered into a competition to win an hour's coaching call with one of the team. So it'll either be myself, Sean, Simon, or Casey. Actually, you get to decide. So if you don't particularly like my voice, you can choose the fabulous KC or the gorgeous Simon. And we will do four coaching calls with listeners of this show to help you with your business. You can ask us whatever you want. We will support you in any way we can. And we're really excited to do that. To enter the competition to get that coaching call, all you need to do is go to alandonagan.com forward slash rebel feedback and fill out the form and tick the box saying you want to be entered. This episode will be airing on the 19th of October 2020. 
You've got a few weeks after that to fill out the form. The deadline for entering the competition is the 9th of November 2020. So you can fill out the form later than that, but the actual competition is the 9th of November 2020. And then we will let you know if you've been one of the winners by the 13th of November 2020. If you're listening to the podcast beyond that date, you can still go to that page and tell us what you think of this podcast. I am so grateful for your feedback. And as it's the end of season one, I have a few thank yous to make. Thank you to Brad, Jonathan and Ed from Choose FI. They're the partner show that has helped make this all possible. Thank you, for gentlemen, for believing in me and the concept and helping me to bring it to air and to life. Thank you to the pop-up team, to Simon, KC, Sean, Henry, Jack, James and the whole gang. Thank you for your energy, effort, doing the episodes and bringing your A-game. And a thank you to all of the guests on the show, from Millennial Revolution to Mr. Money Mustache and Mike Essex, to the people we've coached along the way, Darcy the Yoga episode and Curtis. We've had incredible guests the whole way long. So thank you, each and every one of you, for your energy and for what you've put to make this a great show. And the final thank you is to you. Thank you for listening. I built this podcast because I wanted to help you. I wanted to get the message out there that you can build a business. You can make money doing something you love. You can create and build the life of your dreams. And that's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to give you. And none of this would be possible without you listening, getting involved, commenting and being part of the show. Thank you for listening to The Rebel Entrepreneur. You've been listening to Rebel Entrepreneur with Alan Donegan. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to get new, fresh episodes as soon as they've launched. To stay up to date with the rebellion, visit choosefi.com slash rebel. Thanks for joining the rebellion.